Well, good morning again. Come on and grab a seat. We'll get started here. You doing well? Well, you look good. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is John, and I serve Mission Church as the senior pastor. I'm honored. I'm humbled to be with you this morning, especially in this context as we finish our Advent series in the book of Ruth. And so we made it. We're here in chapter 4, and we're going to complete the text this morning. And so if you have a Bible, please grab it, open it up to chapter 4 of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some out on the bookshelf outside in the foyer. And we also have a bunch of the Ruth Scripture Journal left on the table. Please go and grab one of those. It's our gift to you. Um, It's just the text of Ruth with lined journal pages next to uh, each page. Please go grab one of those before they're all gone because we only have a few left, but we'd like for you to grab them. So you can get up at any point, grab a Bible and do that. Um, Once you are at Ruth chapter 4, and if you're able to, I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord from Ruth chapter 4. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So we went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you find or you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I'll ruin my inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the Redeemer, he removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also required Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the gate or the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The name 
the neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, <laughs> Aminadab, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this beautiful story we've been working through the last five weeks. We pray, Lord, that as we complete our way through this text, or that we would see clearly how your hand has been providentially at work in the lives of these folks, and also we would see it in our own lives, that you are working all things together for our good and your glory. No matter what we may be experiencing, God, you are in control and we trust you. We also pray that we, we would see clearly from this text the narrative that you've been weaving all through this text and is ultimately pointing to you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you give us a clear understanding of the gospel, and that we would leave here equipped, that we would be equipped to live like Jesus, love Jesus, and to lead others to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to slow down during this time of Advent, to, to face the darkness so that we might appreciate the light. Pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart might be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Life is not an open freeway through the desert where you can see for miles ahead of you, but it's more like a dirt road through the mountains. On this road called life, there's, there's rock slides, there's steep cliffs and slippery curves and sharp turns, and there's bears, lots of bears. But all along this hazardous and exhausting road, there are road signs that say, God is in control, and come to me all who are weary. And I'm working all things together for your good and my glory. And, well, the book of Ruth has been one of these road signs for us. And as we studied the book of Ruth this Advent season, I pray that you have been encouraged with the hope that all these perplexing turns and the rocky roads that happen in your life, that they are not dead-end streets, but instead, all the setbacks of life, you can be assured that God is providentially arranging the details of your life for for your good and His glory. Let's be honest. As we travel through the difficult and winding roads of life, it's easy to miss the signs. It's easy to miss the signs of God's grace and His goodness. We look around and see a world that aches with sin. We look around and see a world that is aching because of the consequences of sin. Tell me, what do you do when you're faced not only with the world's brokenness and depravity, But when you look within and you're faced with your own brokenness and depravity, how in those moments do you know that God loves you, that he's for you? What hope do you have in ever being accepted by a holy and righteous God? Well, for many of us, we try to be good enough. We attempt to make a fresh start, to turn a new leaf, so to speak, And it goes good for a while, but we end up hitting a dead end because, well, we just can't be good enough. We fail. We realize that good enough doesn't work, so we try to be smart enough. We search for all the right answers. And when that doesn't work, we try to be spiritual enough by signing up for a multitude of religious activities, but good enough and smart enough and religious enough 
are all dead ends. Trying to be spiritual, trying to be good, trying to be smart leads to despair. It leads to self-deception. You see, eventually the pain and the brokenness of the disconnected world that we live in and the pain and the brokenness within ourselves shows us that something is wrong. And the more we try to fix it, the more we realize how frail, empty, and hopeless and helpless we are. And the more we realize we need someone to do for us what we have failed to do for ourselves. We need a redeemer. Like Naomi and Ruth, we too have no ability to fix the mess of our situation. We too need a redeemer who is willing to pay the price of redemption. And this morning, we see that God is currently weaving our ordinary stories, just like Ruth's and Naomi's ordinary story, into the bigger tapestry of the kingdom of His Son, even in the messiness of life. Even in the mundane of life, we can know that God loves us. We can know that He has a plan for us. Now, we arrive at the last act, the final episode of our sermon series to the book of Ruth that we've entitled, From Ruin to Redemption. And I know that some of you are new to the Ruth story and have missed an episode or two, and so I want to take a moment to set the stage to try to get us on the same page, if I, if I can, before we get started in Act 4, which I've entitled, The Willing Redeemer. In chapter 1, we are given front row seats to the bitter providence of a woman named Naomi. She had left her land in disobedience. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She lost one of her daughters-in-law. Although Naomi, she could not see it, the sweet providence of God was present as well. You see, there was a famine in Bethlehem, and it had ended. And not only that, but her other daughter-in-law, Ruth, had committed to being with her. But still, the chapter ends with Naomi so overwhelmed by her losses, so overwhelmed by her circumstances that she felt as though God was against her, that he had forgotten her. She even changed her name that meant, what did it mean? <laughs> she changed her name from, from Naomi, and she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And so she even changed her name to bitter. You see, Naomi allowed her circumstances to define her. She allowed her circumstances to define who she believed God was rather than God defining for her her circumstances. And as a result, she felt empty. She had felt despair and depression, and she was broken. In chapter 2, the mercy of God breaks through, even bright enough for bitter Naomi to see it. We meet a man named Boaz. He was a man of wealth, a man of God a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. We see Ruth taking refuge under Boaz's wings, so to speak, in a foreign land being led merciful to Boaz's field to glean, which was to collect the grain on the margins, which were left for the marginalized Ruth. And we see Naomi recover from her bitter season of hopelessness at the end of chapter 2, as she sees that God had never left her, God had never forsaken her, God never walked out on her, and she begins praising him for the lavish grace that God had poured out on her life. Well, chapter 2 overflows with hope that spills into chapter 3 where we were last week, empowers Naomi and Ruth to live with an audacious faith, and they make a risky move in the middle of the night. Last week, we spent some time on the threshing floor and was scandalous, but we found two people who are pure. Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor and essentially proposes to Boaz. 
Now, Boaz had been caring for Naomi and Ruth up to this point by providing protection and provision. And not only that, but being a relative of her late husband, he was qualified to serve what was called a family redeemer. According to the law of Moses, a family redeemer could redeem the widow's land and, and, and provide an heir for the deceased. So Boaz, he was flattered by Ruth's proposal. He was pumped. He was excited, but he remembers something. There's another redeemer that's closer. There's another family member that has dibs on Naomi's land and Ruth's hand in marriage. And so right when tragedy of Ruth's widowhood seemed to be resolving into a beautiful, happy ending, a beautiful love story, she experiences another setback. She experiences what could be another heartbreak. I can only imagine that Ruth's heart sunk. What would she do? What would she say? Well, there was nothing that she could do but just to trust Boaz. After all, at the end of chapter 3, Boaz tells her, just trust me, be patient. I promise you that your future will be secure. I promise you that I will ensure your protection. And not only that, but when Ruth returned home to tell Naomi of her adventure, Naomi too reassures her and says, well, that Boaz is a determined man and he will not rest until he is taken care of you. Well, Naomi's confidence in Boaz was not misplaced, for he was indeed a man of resolve and action, and that brings us to chapter 4, verse 5. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Remember, Boaz was just sleeping on the threshing floor. He was guarding his grain from thieves, that's why he was sleeping there. The threshing floor was a dangerous place, and so he was guarding his grain, he had worked hard, Famine had just ended, and he didn't want his grain to disappear. And so, clearly, he was not planning on returning to the town in the morning. He was most likely anticipating a full day's worth of work transporting his grain back from the fields. But he didn't wait until the evening. He didn't wait until the workday was over to take care of Ruth. You see, Boaz all of a sudden had a change of priority. He was no longer thinking about business. He was thinking about his bride. So he leaves his grain, and he goes to the town gate. And now the town gate was an open space. It was a space in which there was benches, and, and it was the place where people would gather to meet, and it also served as a potential uh, modern-day courthouse. The gate was also the best place to find someone. And so Boaz, he sits and he waits for this other potential redeemer, the one who has dibs. Look back at verse 1. Soon the family redeemer, Boaz, had spoken about, came by. Most likely he's on his way out to the field for work, and Boaz says, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here, and they sat down. And we're now introduced to this other family redeemer. And notice that we're not given his name. If you have an ESV Bible, it may address this family redeemer as friend. In the CSB, it just completely ignores him. He just says, come and sit down. Doesn't address him at all. But what's interesting is that in the original text, Boaz addresses him with a Hebrew idiom. When Boaz summons this man over, he literally says, come over here, Poloni Almoni, which is a rhyming but meaningless phrase that's roughly equivalent to saying, hey you, or hey Joe Schmo, or or, hey, bro, come over here. 
sit down. The point is, the author is intentionally leaving this man's name a mystery. He's purposefully keeping the identity of this other potential redeemer in obscurity. Why? Well, there's a few reasons, and we'll see as we work our way through this narrative. But this man of mystery sits down with Boaz, and before the town elders, and we can imagine that the town begins to gather around. This was an open space, and it was a place in which people would watch in and, and see the proceedings that were taking place. And so as people are gathering around, the gavel strikes, so to speak, and the court case begins. Verse 3 does not begin, however, the way we would anticipate. You see, Boaz, he doesn't start off the proceedings by talking about Ruth. We would imagine that would be the first course of business, but he doesn't. Instead, he talks about Naomi and a piece of property. Let's take a look at verse 3. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here. And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I'm next after you. And the man says, that's a good deal. I want to redeem it. In other words, look, Poloni Almoni, our sister Naomi has a field. She needs to sell the field to raise money to live on. If there was a kinsman redeemer, however, he could buy that field and keep it in the family. Of course, the buyer would ultimately, he would get to add this property to his own property. He would be able to add it to his own inheritance. And guess what? You are first in line. Are you interested? Understand, this is an amazing deal. For just a little bit of money, this man can carry out a very well-respected family responsibility and enhance his name and enhance his popularity and reputation around town. He would be looked at as such a fine young man. What a wonderful thing he did for this widow and these two widows. Financially, this investment was a bargain without any risk. And his little investment would develop over years a productive, profitable harvest, ultimately enhancing what would be a future inheritance for his children. How could he lose? What a good deal. And as you can imagine, before Boaz finishes his sentence, The man jumps on this deal, and he says, of course I'm willing. Who would turn down a deal like this? But wait a second. If you've been following with us, chapter 3 ended with a cliffhanger in which our heart had sunk as Ruth had proposed to Boaz, and she is waiting to be redeemed. And and now, is this really how the story is going to end? Ruth is supposed to be with Boaz, not this weirdo. We don't even know his name. But like a good storyteller, the narrator knows exactly what he's doing, and he ultimately wants our hearts to sink. He wants us, who have spent all this time watching Boaz and Ruth's relationship developing and blossoming, to scream at him and say, are you serious? Is this really going to end before it begins? But Boaz, you see, he isn't finished yet. He was just cut off. He has an ace up his sleeve. No doubt this was a premeded strategy by Boaz. While the first aspect of the exchange focused on Naomi's land was done, Boaz proceeds to the second issue, Ruth's hand. In other words, this guy has been hooked by Boaz and he's about to reel him in. Look at verse 5. Boaz says, 
on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Did I forget to mention? When you acquire the field, you get a Moabite wife thrown in. Ruth, you know, the one, the widow of our brother, Malon, the dead man whose field this was. If you want the land, you have to marry her too. As you can imagine, this changes everything for Poloni Almoni. The cost of redemption has just increased dramatically. You see, if Ruth has a child, which is what's meant to happen, the child will inherit the field when he dies or when she dies. Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni, will eventually lose the land to this child. The money he paid for it will reduce his assets rather than increase it, meaning he'll have less to leave his own children in his inheritance. He now has a greater cost to consider. How will he respond? Look at verse 6. The Redeemer replies, I can't do that. I can't redeem it. I'll ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because, well, this deal is no good. I can't do it. With this new information, he quickly changes his tune. He says, well, you know, on second thought, what a moment before had seemed like a can't-miss real estate deal has suddenly become a, a financial investment nightmare. He refuses the deal. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. First, when he added up the cost of redeeming the property, caring for Ruth and Mary, or caring for Naomi and marrying Ruth, the cost was just too much. Not to mention, Ruth is a Moabite, remember? She's from enemy territory. She's an outsider. She's an outcast. I can't marry her. My child will be of mixed blood. Second, if he did marry her and she had a son, then he would lose the land, lose the investment, and his kids would get less of an inheritance. The cost is just too much at this point. I can't do it. It seems as though the payoff for him, if there isn't one, or if it's less, his family is not going to be cared for in the way he wants to, then ministry is not a good idea. Unless I'm getting a payoff, then caring for the outcast and caring for the poor and the outsider, well, that's just out of question. And the irony is here, he's trying to protect his name. He's trying to protect his inheritance and, and his future. But Poloni Almoni, what happens is he ends up leaving himself forever nameless. And we call him by Poloni Almoni. But we never know his name. And as we'll see, he ends up missing out on the biggest legacy of all. A place in God's plan of salvation. Well, like Poloni Almoni, I think that we too often evaluate the cost of sharing our faith in the same way. We often evaluate whether or not we're going to serve the church according to the same scale. We ask, what's in it for me? Will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? What will it cost me? And in doing the math, we leave God out of the equation. And we end up getting our answers completely wrong. You see, we calculate and we protect ourselves and insist that two plus two always and only equals four. But God's kingdom operates, friends, on a different kind of calculus, a new math in which the weight of fullness runs through emptiness. And part of the calculus is putting what the Lord thinks of us before what the world thinks of us. Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni, Joe Schmo, he didn't do this kind of math. He flunked it. 
The numbers didn't add up for him. He clung to what he had, and as a result, he lost something far greater, something he could never have dreamed of. Boaz, on the other hand, he got an A in God's calculus, this new math, so to speak. His desire to acquire the land and his desire to marry Ruth and care for Naomi, it may have not made fiscal sense. It may have been looked at by others as a a horrible financial investment. But by working to preserve the remembrance of his dead relative, Boaz, yes, he would be sacrificing his own welfare, his own property, his own prosperity. But listen, a true redeemer is willing to pay whatever the cost is to redeem. The true redeemer is willing to selfishly pay the price of redemption. Boaz was the only one who was able to redeem and was willing to redeem. In this respect, Boaz represents to you and I this morning the nature of grace that we ultimately find in Jesus, who was under no obligation to redeem sinners. In fact, he could have left every one of us to our own demise, to our own condemnation that we deserve, but he willingly, Christ, humbled himself to the point of a, a servant. He took on human flesh and he paid the required redemption price, death on a cross. Now, with Boaz willing to pay the price necessary to redeem the land and to marry Ruth, the matter is settled. The deal is confirmed through a really interesting custom. Take a look at verse 8. You guys hanging with me? This is a tough text. I just want to make sure you're with me. So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his own town. You are witnesses today. So what's this guy taking off his sandal for? That's kind of weird, right? Maybe I just thought it was weird. He's taken off his sandal. What's this all about? He's given his shoe to Boaz. Well, the sandal served as both an, a, a handshake, confirming the deal, and it also served as, as a receipt, a, a, uh, a proof of purchase or proof of transaction, if you will. If Mr. and so-and-so changes his mind, comes back and says, just kidding, I see the value, I want to redeem, well, Boaz can pull out the man's sandal and say, nope, I got your sandal, it's the receipt. It's kind of a weird receipt, but it, it, it works. <laughs> it was a symbol that Mr. So-and-so had forfeited his right to redeem. But the sandal represents so much more. You see, just as Boaz steps into Mr. So-and-so's sandal to take and redeem the land, at the cross, Jesus, our Boaz-like redeemer, steps in our shoes. He pays our debt. And all who call upon the name of the Lord are redeemed, are saved, and we're bound with Him. In those moments in which you are assaulted with shame and guilt and memories of sin that's been forgiven, you have a receipt that's so much greater than a sandal, and it's the cross that you can look to and say, no, I am redeemed. My Savior paid the price. It's been paid. The matter has been settled. The deal is confirmed. Warren Wearsby says it like this. 
Like Boaz, Jesus wasn't concerned about jeopardizing his own inheritance. Instead, he made us a part of his inheritance. Like Boaz, Jesus made his plans privately, but he paid the price publicly. And like Boaz, Jesus did what he did because of his love for his bride. Boaz did this for his love of Ruth, and Christ did this for the love of the church. That's us, brothers and sisters. You see, redeeming requires sacrifice. Redeeming is costly. It requires a payment. And Jesus, he gave his life. Boaz gave his wealth. But ultimately, Boaz was willing to make the payment because of his love for God and his love for Ruth. Now, this meeting is over. Sandal has been exchanged. The negotiations are finished. The legal process is done. Boaz has given his speech, but something significant happens at the city gate. Look at verse 11. The witnesses respond to the legal proceedings by offering a threefold prayer of blessing. Verse 11. All the people who were at the city gates, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. Why is this significant? Well, if you remember who Ruth is, <laughs> this is very profound prayer. For Ruth was an outsider. She was an outcast. She was from enemy territory of Moab. Yet these elders of Bethlehem and these villagers from the city are surrounding and, and sharing this prayer of blessing. And they're saying that Ruth would take her place alongside Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were the moms of the 12 boys who became the 12 tribes of Israel. This is very profound. In other words, these elders of Bethlehem are praying that the Lord would grant Ruth a key role among God's people. And the blessing continues. It doesn't stop there. He says, or they say, may you be powerful. This is to Boaz. And Ephrathah, and your name well known in Bethlehem. This second part of the prayer is, is not just a prayer that Boaz would have a good reputation. Like, may you be known as the awesome guy from Bethlehem, but rather it, that he would be specifically known for his kindness, his compassion, his integrity. Everything in which we know him for in the book that we have read this Advent season. And the prayer continues in verse 12. They pray, not just for Ruth and not just for Boaz, but this is for the family. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar, born to Judah. Because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. This final blessing, as I said, is, is for the family as a whole. And the story of Judah and Tamar is found back in Genesis 38, and it is one scandalous story. But the point here is that like Ruth, Tamar had also lost her husband. Like Ruth, Tamar was also childless. Like Ruth, Tamar's family line was threatened, and it seemed like a husband and an heir was out of the question, and that her husband's family name would die out. However, by the providence of God, he provided for Tamar. And he provide, will provide for Ruth, as we'll see in a moment. But the providence of God proved to play an important role in salvation history. God promised that the Messiah would come from Judah. And Judah's strongest son is Perez, who just so happens to be Boaz's great-great-great-grandfather. In other words, this third prayer 
is for Boaz to have a renowned lineage in Bethlehem. Little did they know how renowned his lineage would be. The story continues, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. So Boaz marries Ruth and and they do what married people do and something miraculous happens. Ruth, who was barren, remember, she was in Moab with her husband Malon for 10 years and on the back coming home to Beth or coming to Bethlehem after her husband had died, one of the heartbreaks for Naomi was that she had no grandchild. She had no heir. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, she marries Boaz and God gives her the opportunity to have a child. Verse 13 says that the Lord essentially healed her womb, granted her conception. And this is the last we hear of Ruth in our story here. And we're redirected to Naomi. Look at verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. Some texts say a nanny to him. The neighbor woman, the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. Notice that, that it wasn't Boaz that names him, it's the, it's the, the other women. Obed. And Obed, father of Jesse, the father of David. This can only mean one thing. This baby boy that Naomi held in her lap is a redeemer too. He's a gift from God and God's final answer to Naomi's emptiness and her bitterness that started in chapter 1. Remember, Naomi went from full to empty. And as a result, she went from pleasant to bitter. And rightfully so. She had gone through the ringer. She struggled with despair. She struggled with depression. In fact, she was so broken, she wanted to give up on God because she thought God had given up on her. But God did not give up on her. And maybe you're where Naomi is, or was. Bitter, broken, blinded by the difficulty of your circumstances and experiences. Maybe you too are close to giving up on God if you have not given up on Him yet. But friend, listen to me. God has not left you. God will not walk out on you. God will not forsake you. He has promised that. He will not. And just as we watch the providence of God working in the life of Naomi to bring about His purpose for His glory and her good, you can trust that God is doing the same thing for you. Consider Romans chapter 8, verse 28. that says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, God's purpose and, and plan includes you. But understand, you're not the center of it all. You see, the fact that Ruth and, and Boaz's baby lies in Naomi's lap and not Ruth's lap and is named by the women of Bethlehem and not Boaz suggests that there's something bigger going on here that the parents could not have predicted or control. This child has a larger significance than simply being a baby born to Ruth and Boaz. You see, Ruth and Boaz's baby, born in Bethlehem, turns out to be the great or the grandfather of King David, 
And this is only the beginning. And if you look at verse 18 through 22, a, a portion of text that many of us in our Bible reading plan skim over of genealogy, we see beginning with Perez, who was a miracle in himself in a very scandalous situation in Genesis 38, and he fathers Hezron, and fathered Hezron fathers Ram, and I'm going to try this again, Ram fathered Amenabadab, <laughs> and he fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and fathered Boaz fathered Obed, and then it continues, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. In verse 22, the mention of David should alert us to something bigger happening. The fact that Obed was not the end of the story. Ruth chapter 4 is not the end. What looked like a simple story of personal emptiness being filled and a personal need being met turns out to be God's way of, of meeting a far, far greater need. God provides Ruth, a childless widow, with a husband and a son, to Naomi, an older, bitter woman, a widow, whose family line was close to extinction, God had provided Obed. And to a nation close to extinction, God provides Israel's most famous king, King David. Remember, this story takes place in the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This, this nation was on the, earth, the, the edge of extinction. It was a mess and so through this line, God also provides a much-needed king. You see, God uses all these events to bring about his own goals that are so much bigger than the characters involved in this story could possibly have imagined. In fact, the prayer from the elders that sought lasting recognition for Boaz was remarkably fulfilled after his death with the birth of King David. And the royal line of David continues. Right through the Old Testament and to the New Testament, and to reach its climax in another baby born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 1 tells us this. I'm going to summarize the genealogy. The first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 are summarized in verse 1 an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you walk through all 17 verses, you'll see Ruth mentioned again the first time since Ruth chapter 4. But God zooms out to show us the bigger picture that he's been working on all along. And as you read through, like I said, these next 16 verses of Jesus' genealogy, you might be tempted to skip it. But if you do, you'll miss a family tree that is full of prostitutes, liars, and murderers. And the crazy thing is, they're included. God doesn't exclude these folks from being used by God. They're all included. In the genealogy of Jesus, God's Son, our Redeemer. Now, why would God use such broken sinners? Why would they be included in Jesus' family history? Because God is pointing to the people that Jesus came to save. You see, like Ruth, you and I, we're foreigners to God's kingdom. Strangers, outcasts, rebels, enemies. And like Boaz, Jesus has bought us with a price far greater. But unlike Boaz, we were not bought with silver and gold or bought with the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus gave everything so that we could be His, so that He could redeem us. Tell me, do you know the love of Christ this morning? Do you know the love that reaches to outsiders, that reaches to outcasts and enemies and brings them into the family of God? If you do, then praise God. Let's celebrate but unfortunately, there's many around us this morning who don't know that love yet. 
many are still trying to earn their own passage to heaven, still trying to switch the destination on their ticket through their own merits, their own good works. They still think that somehow they could be good enough or smart enough or religious enough or that God's standard will in the end provide to prove to be flexible enough to let them in. The Bible is clear, friends. We're all sinners. We are all sinners. We are all rebels and outlaws. We're criminals and our crimes deserve death. The rift created by sin is unfathomably wide and there's nothing that you and I can do to bridge that gap. We can't pay for our crimes and we can't restore things to how they're meant to be. We can't climb up to God. The good news is that God, He climbed down to us in Jesus. That's what makes Christianity different from every other world religion. There's not a ladder that we need to work our way up to God, but God came down to us in the person of Jesus, God's Son, who was born on earth, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life under God's rule and reign. And then He suffered painfully and shamefully on the cross to pay for our punishment that our sins deserve. And three days later, Jesus rose victoriously and returned to his Father where he is sitting right now, ruling and reigning. Because of Jesus, we who were once outcasts, enemies, outsiders, can live up close with God again. You're hidden in Christ. You can stand before God confidently. Because he doesn't look at you and see the mess, but he sees his son. And so we can now stand before a holy and righteous God. It's amazing what Christ has done for us. We were lost apart from God, but he saves us. He pays for our sin. He cleanses our filth. He makes us right. Praise God for our Redeemer. And praise God that he doesn't leave us as he found us. Like Naomi, we open our hearts to God, we will discover that He has been at work in our lives all along, and He will continue to be at work until we are unrecognizably changed, until we're loving Jesus, living like Jesus, and leading others to Jesus. God's grace has an enormous transforming power, yet that grace works only in the lives of those whose eyes are opened to their desperateness and their need of salvation, who know that they can do nothing but cling to Christ. God, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the fact that there's nothing that we can do but to receive. And this morning, God, I pray for those who came in here beat up and broken, like Naomi was a couple chapters before. I pray, Lord, that they'd see that your hand has been at work in their life, that you are working all things for good, for their good and your glory. Pray, Lord, that they'd find rest in the good news of the gospel. I pray, Lord, for those who have come in here this morning, doing the best that they can to earn your love. I can't imagine how exhausting that is. I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts so they would see that you have already done the work. Lord, that you would just call them to rest in you. Thank you for lavish grace that you've poured out on our lives. We worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We now have an